Thus far, we have been watching Solomon take the leadership that David passed on to him to construct the temple of God that is the permanent house of God that will be there in Jerusalem. In our recent chapters, we saw that process taking place, the construction process actually ends up being about a seven-year construction process, we know from some of the other accounts in First Kings. And therefore, chapter 5, verse 1 tells us, So all the work that Solomon had done for the house of the Lord was finished. So the structure itself, which we looked at in great detail last time in our chapters together, remember it was uh, a building that was about 2,700 square foot in total, not a real large facility. But again, that was because predominantly it wasn't intended for the congregation to all assemble inside of the building as often we do today when we think about the house of God or a church building where we gather together like this. The temple of God in that day was really more intended to be a place where just a few individuals, the priests, would go in and conduct their ministries. And remember, it was a building, beautiful in its construction, was about 30 foot wide, about 90 foot long, about 45 foot tall in its height, and it was basically divided into two sections, the first room or the front room that you went into, uh, which was the larger room called the Holy Place. There, remember, was uh, quite a bit more than in the actual tabernacle, the tent-like structure in the temple. Instead of there being one table of showbread, there was actually ten, five on each side. There was actually five on each side as well, candlesticks or menorahs. Uh, rather than the one lampstand, there was actually ten total in there. There was an altar of incense in that first room. And then in the rear of the uh, temple itself, that room in the back referred to as the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place, which we'll see referred to again tonight, was the place where ultimately the Ark of God always ended up being in the same way it was in the tabernacle. And there at the Ark was where atonement was made for the sins of the people. One time a year, the high priest had the opportunity to go back there and the reason why only once a year one God-ordained man with the blood of an innocent sacrifice could go back into that rear room where the ark was, the holy of holies or the most holy place, was because that was where God manifested his presence among the people. Uh, there at the ark between the cherubim, God manifested his presence there. Uh, and so not anyone could just have direct access into the presence of God. There was the veil that separated the two rooms to remind the people that God was holy and God was awesome and a consuming fire uh, and that therefore they needed to respect and reverence the presence of God. God and God can only be approached on God's specific terms due to his greatness and his holiness. And of course, outside in the courtyard was then the brazen altar where the sacrifices were offered, as well as remember the uh, the sea, the brass sea, where the priests would wash and the different lavers where they would wash as well on the carts as they moved around the sacrifices that were made. And last time we showed some pictures and kind of looked at those things. But again, as we talked about this and the beauty of it all and the carvings and all overlaid with gold and the precious stones, it was an incredible process. About 150,000, remember, laborers involved in this construction process of preparing this great temple that Solomon constructed by David's design that the Lord had given to him, the blueprints, it seems, by the Spirit. And now we read in chapter 5 that all the work that Solomon had done for the house of the Lord 
was now finished. So he brings it to completion. Again, about a seven-year-long period. Took seven long years to carry out the work to its completion. And I'm certain, just like any construction process, whether God's the one directing it or not, when you have human beings involved, uh, I'm sure there were some challenges. I'm sure there were difficulties and obstacles that came up. Again, they were quarrying stone and carrying it down from the mountain areas and bringing it to Jerusalem, bearing the burdens, and again, trying to line all this up. And again, they didn't have laser levels and power tools and all the things that we have the advantage of using today. I mean, this was hard, laborious work that they were doing to build this beautiful temple for God. And like any construction process, I'm sure there were times when they were wearied in the work. I'm sure there were times when maybe people were complaining and there were challenges or maybe something didn't fit quite right or they had to work through difficulties. But the beautiful thing to see is that what they began, they finished. What Solomon began as an assignment from God, he carried out to completion. He was faithful. He carried through to completion what God had assigned for him to do for the house of the Lord. I love that the text tells us that just like Huram, who we read about in the last chapter, who was the stone worker and the one who was a skilled craftsman and woodworking and fabric and all those things, it says that Huram finished doing the work that King Solomon gave him for the house of God. And Solomon is the leader and the overseer. We read again the Holy Spirit of another servant of God that he as well, it said, made sure that he took the work that God gave him to do and he actually finished it. And and to me, that's just a great reminder that we see throughout the word of God uh, that God himself finishes what he starts. And so therefore, as those who represent God and who have the privilege to serve God, uh, we should reflect the same, that when God gives us something to do, we should carry it to completion. We should finish out those things that we start for the Lord. It's good to complete what we commit to, despite, and look, it's going to happen, obstacles, challenges, Difficulties, things are going to come up that are going to distract. Situations are going to arise where maybe once it was easier to do what God gave us to do, but all of a sudden now it's taking more effort. It's requiring more sacrifice. And a lot of times I find that's when many people are tempted to just stop or they just give up. Well, I mean, this used to be easy, but now it's hard to keep being faithful. So that's what faithfulness means. Faithfulness means that you stay at it. You remain committed to it. You sacrifice a little more. You do whatever you got to do to still get things done. And so when God gives us something to do in the same way, our employer at our job expects us to be faithful and carry out tasks. How much more when we're doing things for God, right? How much more when we're doing something for the house of the Lord, maybe some ministry or assignment or whatever God has tasked us with, that we would complete and finish that work, even as our Lord Jesus was faithful to do the same in what he did for the house of the Lord as well. Remember when Jesus was about to die, when he was praying to his father, he said, Father, I have finished the work that you've given me to do. And then when he died on the cross, one of his last statements, it is finished. I completed it. It wasn't easy, but Jesus said, I carried it out and I finished what I began to do for the house of the Lord, even as the greatest servant he was. You know, it's interesting in the New Testament, Paul speaking in Colossians 4 to one of the individuals there in the church of Colossae, Colossians 4, 17, Paul writes, say to Archippus, 
Take heed to the ministry which you've received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. Seems like, again, and how awkward that must have been as this letter was being read to the church of Colossae. They'd receive these letters and read them publicly. Paul publicly calls out this poor guy, Archippus, in front of the whole church. They're reading this letter. And you know, set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. Oh, that's good. Seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand. And they're listening to this wonderful letter. And then all of a sudden, you know, Paul's telling them, you know, pray that God would give me an open door and that I would, you know, make the most of every opportunity. Yeah, that's good. We're going to pray for you, Paul. And then all of a sudden he just, the very end of the letter, within the last few phrases, and by the way, tell Chip, get back to work. Tell him stop being lazy. Tell him he knows he's been given a ministry from the Lord and he should be fulfilling it the way that the Lord entrusted him to be doing such. So again, just a common struggle for all of us, but certainly the ideal is to finish what the Lord gives us to do and and carry out those things to completion. So Solomon now carries it out. Seven years have passed and now he's going to dedicate the house of God. That's really what chapters five and six give to us, sort of the dedication ceremony as he now brings the Ark of the Covenant at that final, uh, most important, critical piece of furniture into the temple itself. So Solomon brought, verse 5, the things which his father David had dedicated, that is the silver and the gold and all the furnishings, and he put them in the treasuries of the house of God. So take notice, Solomon here, after he builds the temple and used a great amount of gold and silver and precious stones, apparently there was quite a bit David had amassed to be dedicated for God's resources to do God's ministry. There were storehouses and treasuries in the temple as well. And here we see in verse 1, Solomon faithfully managing God's resources. Resources that were dedicated to the house of God, gold, silver, monetary resources that were intended to be used for the work of the ministry and the kingdom purposes and the worship of God's people in the temple. And here we see Solomon faithfully managing those things. It says he puts them there in the treasuries of the house of God so that he'd be at the disposal of the temple as ministry was carried out. Verse 2 says, Now Solomon then assembled all the leaders of Israel, the heads of the tribes and chief fathers of the children of Israel in Jerusalem, that they might, notice what he gathers them for, bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord up from the city of David, which is in Zion. So again, this was the final piece that was still missing to consolidate everything now in the temple. Remember, David had brought up the ark quite some time back and pitched a tent for it there in Jerusalem because when he took over the throne of Israel, one of the first things on David's heart was he wanted to bring the ark back into the center of the national life of the people because, again, the ark represented the presence of the Lord. And David and all the people understood that as worshipers of God, that that was where God promised to manifest his presence. And David wanted the presence of the Lord at the center of the national life of the people. And that's why he brought the ark back up, even when the tabernacle for a time was still actually in another location and things were kind of separated somewhat. So the temple has been built and things have been built anew, again, on the inside. But the one thing that they still need to do is to bring the ark itself, which has been in a tent that David pitched for it in the city of David there, into the temple and to put it there as sort of the crowning piece, the final part 
of the temple that they might begin to actually utilize the temple to worship that God wanted them to. And I love what David does here. Notice verse 2. He calls together all the male leaders to bring about, if you would, what would usher in the presence of God. And he calls together there very clearly, verse 2. In fact, verse 3 tells us, all the men of Israel assembled. So it's a reference. It says the heads of the tribes, the chief fathers, uh, all the elders of Israel. These are all the male leaders among the nation. And David says, look, I want all the men to show up and to participate and to take spiritual responsibility to help me now bring in the ark to the temple. I want them to participate in doing what it takes to usher the presence of God in the midst of us and to be engaged in that and involved in that. And I love the fact that verse 3 says, therefore all the men of Israel assembled, that is they embraced their calling from their king. God help us. I hope that all of us as men would embrace the same calling from our king, not Solomon, but from Jesus. To be those who as spiritual leaders and the priests of our households and those who are intended to be the ones, uh, you know, taking the step forward, leading by example, carrying the spiritual torch, if you would, for our family, that as representatives of families within the body of Christ, that we would as well be the ones who say, you know, hey, it's our responsibility to engage in what it takes to participate, to see the presence of the Lord ushered in among his congregation now and that we would take that as a calling from our lives and from our king and 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 do our part rather than sit back passively thankful for godly women but i'm saddened by spiritual passivity of men at times and this is god's calling for us and here all the men it says assembled together with the king at the feast which was in the seventh month. Now that would tell us the seventh month, sometime around what we would have, kind of our October-ish, we're not exactly certain, September, October-ish time frame, the fall. They had a different calendar, a lunar calendar than what we used. Uh, But this would then therefore be a reference to the Feast of Tabernacles. So David is bringing the ark into the temple at the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember, the Feast of Tabernacles is one of the three major feasts of the many feasts that Israel observed as holidays and festivals, which were basically spiritual holidays. Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. These were the three mandatory feasts that all the males were required to participate in. Uh, And here it's on the Feast of Tabernacles, which celebrates, interestingly enough, God's faithfulness. That's what tabernacles celebrated, God's faithfulness to the people as they traveled through the wilderness and as they lived outside in booths, in temporary shelters, under the stars for 40 years, journeying through the wilderness that God preserved them, he took care of them, he made sure to sustain them. And no doubt, again, as likely Ezra is writing this, Second Chronicles, it's a letter again that was predominantly, or this book, I guess you might say, written to the post-exilic Jews who are returning back from the Babylonian captivity after a time of discipline for 70 years for the things that they had done wrong and how God kept them and preserved them and now God's faithfulness 
would be bringing them back into the land. And uh, this record, particularly of these events, were written kind of with that viewpoint to encourage the post-exilic Jews who were coming back to reflect on God's faithfulness. And no doubt why the Holy Spirit has this recorded here, that that was when they did this bringing of the ark during the Feast of Tabernacles. Verse 4 says, So all the elders of Israel came, and the Levites, take notice, the Levites took up the ark, that is, they carried it, uh, by poles upon their shoulders. Remember, that was God's prescribed way. And they brought up the ark, the tabernacle of meeting, and all the holy furnishings that were in the tabernacle, the priests and the Levites brought them up. So as they transport these things, I have to suspect that, again, remember the events we saw with David when he sought to bring the ark in the first time and he built the cart and had the whole parade going and he tried to follow the Philistine model, the world's model of how to bring in the ark back to Jerusalem the first time. And you remember the catastrophe where the ark stumbled uh, or the cart stumbled because, you know, of the, the ox kind of hitting something or the cart losing its balance and the ark started to fall and Uzzah reached out his hand to try and keep God from falling if you would and God struck him dead on the spot and David learned you have the right intention you have the right heart but you're going about it the wrong way and you can't go about my ways by patterns that you find in the world and that's what they were doing trying to follow the Philistines idea of bringing the ark in our cart and David had to go back together with the people of Israel and search the scriptures and find out once again that the way to transport the ark was reverently by carrying it upon their shoulders slowly sacrificially with reverence towards God and towards God's holiness and again it was important that the Levites and the priests carry the ark upon their shoulders because it was somewhat symbolic of the fact that that we would bear and carry the presence of God now you and I in this New Testament sense we bear the presence of God God's presence is born we carry the presence of God wherever we go within us we bring the presence of God so I think David probably said listen son Here's all the blueprints for the temple. But let me give you one big piece of advice once it's all built. Make sure <laughs> that you transport that ark properly. And so here we see Solomon. Uh, no compromise at all. It says he brought up the ark. He brought as well, carried everything else that was a part of the original tabernacle tent-like structure, brought all those things and probably put them in the storehouse of the temple. But specifically, we read the Levites and the priests, they took up and carried the ark properly as they went towards Jerusalem to bring it to the temple. Verse 6 says, And also King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel were assembled with him before the ark were sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be counted or numbered for the multitude. So a lot of sacrifice, a lot of bloodshed. Again, very worshipful experience in the midst of doing these things as they're slowly bringing the ark. It's not just this reverent, we're going to just do it in a trivial manner. That They're every so often pausing, they're sacrificing unto the Lord as an act of worship, as an act of reverence. It says so many oxen and sheep uh, and sacrifices being given that they couldn't even keep track of the multitude of, of the amount of worship that was happening towards God. And verse 7 says, Then the priests brought in the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place, 
into the inner sanctuary, remember of the temple, to the most holy place, that was the rear room, under the wings of the cherubim, remember the golden cherubim, which are angelic creatures, again, representative of the presence of God, that all around the throne and presence of God are angelic beings giving him worship as his servants. For the cherubim spread their wings over the ark, and the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles, and the poles extended so that the ends of the poles of the ark could be seen from the holy place, that is the room in the front, and from the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside, that is outside the temple, and they are there to this day. So they now bring the ark into its proper place. They put it there in the most holy place, putting there by its poles, leaving the poles in place. Verse 10 gives us a little insight. Interestingly, the Holy Spirit tells us here, verse 10, nothing was in the ark except the two tablets which Moses put there at Horeb when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they had come out of Egypt. Now, that's interesting because Hebrews chapter 9 actually tells us, and if you remember from other places in the Old Testament, that there were actually three things that originally were being kept and stored inside of the ark. There was, as is referenced here in verse 10, the two tablets of stone in which the finger of God had inscribed the law when it was given to Moses there on the mountain when God's word was given. Also, secondly, there was the budded staff of Aaron. If you remember when the people were rebelling against God's authority, which Aaron's authority as the high priest was a representative of, and they were rebelling against God's authority upon Aaron's life as the high priest to be the exclusive one to minister among them in the ways that he did. And as the result of that, the whole episode and the budded staff to represent the authority and the God-ordained role of Aaron's life as high priest. And then thirdly as well, there was that golden pot of manna. Remember, there was a pot of manna, the reminder of how God supplied every day what they needed as they would go out in the morning. God would have for them exactly what they needed for the day. And each day they had to depend upon the Lord and in faith go out, responsibly collect what God provided. They couldn't store it up. And that was the way God sustained them through the wilderness by miraculously providing for them every day as they went out morning by morning. Well, by this time, we're told in verse 10 that the only thing left inside of the ark is the two tablets of stone, which were inscribed copies by God's finger of the, the commandments given to Moses, the Ten Commandments. Now, where is the golden jar of manna and the budded staff of Aaron? We have absolutely no idea. That's the best biblical answer we can give for that. For some reason, God allowed them to be removed and all that's left is this representation of the copy of the word of God. All that was preserved inside of the ark was this copy of God's word. Perhaps maybe because unlike Aaron's priesthood, Jesus is now our great high priest. And God knew there would be a greater high priest that Jesus himself would fulfill that role, that Aaron's role as high priest was just temporary. And now Jesus is our great high priest and his authority is what matters more than anything. And perhaps reminder as well that uh, Jesus, as John 6 speaks about, Jesus himself said, I am the true bread from heaven. And now we live by being sustained daily by the life of Jesus. And Jesus himself said, I am the bread of life. And now we live daily dependent upon him 
rather than upon anything else. And of course, we always will still need the eternal word of God. That never changes. And so perhaps that's why it's the one thing that was left remaining inside the ark. Verse 11 says, And it came to pass when the priest came out of the most holy place, for all the priests who were present had sanctified themselves, that is purified or set themselves apart, without keeping to their divisions. And the Levites who were with the singers and all those of Asaph and Heman and Judathon. Remember, these were the musical leaders that God gave special anointing to. We saw that back in First Chronicles, these three individuals. They stood at the east of the altar, clothed in white linen, having their symbols, percussion instruments, stringed instruments, and harps. With them, 120 priests sounding with trumpets, and indeed, beautiful verses, verse 13, it came to pass when the trumpeters and the singers were as one to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord saying, for he is good. For his mercy endures forever, that the house, that is the house of the Lord, was filled with a cloud, that is that glory cloud, the same Shekinah presence, that awesome glory cloud that was with them all throughout the wilderness as they traveled around, which was a representation of the presence of God in their midst. That cloud filled the house of God so that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. So talk about a great dedication ceremony. They bring in the ark, and now, as they bring in the ark of God, and the people begin to worship, God responds very powerfully to the right things that they did, wanting to honor God, wanting to experience God's presence, and beginning to, to utilize the house of God for what it was intended for above everything else. Worship. Worshiping God. Meeting with God. Seeking God. Being in God's presence. Spending time with God. Not social activities. Not great programs of benevolence. Not fun activities. Not, it was predominantly intended to be a house of worship. Because people can do all, none of those things are in and of themselves are wrong. People can do all the other things everywhere else in the world. But at God's house, the God of the house was intended to be worshipped and honored. And so here God sees their hearts and God blesses in a tremendous way where it says the presence of God, this glory cloud, that is the Shekinah glory of God. The Hebrew is literally the weighty presence of God. The heavy weight presence of God comes and in a very heavy way, the idea is God manifests his presence in such a way that it says there that the priests could not even continue ministering. That is so heavy was the presence of God among them that literally the only thing that they could do when God's presence was manifested that strong, the only thing they could do was just worship was just reverence God and just praise God. There was nothing else that was necessary or even something that they could think about or even seem to have the capacity to do in that moment other than just to honor God's greatness and everyone was captivated and compelled to worship God and ceased all other 
activities. And I think in some ways it's a great picture because that's exactly what the temple of God in heaven is going to be like. People aren't doing work and ministry and this and that and thinking, oh, I worship God by just serving all the time. And sometimes Christians and saints even do that. We think somehow service for God is substitute for worship of God. And I think that certainly doing good works and serving the Lord is an aspect of rendering worship to the Lord if our heart is pure, but it should never be a substitute for it. It should never be a substitute for just sitting in the presence of God and giving him worship and glory and honor and adoration. We all need that to maintain a healthy relationship with the Lord in each of our lives. And I love just to see the scene here because it's a great reminder as we read here what happened that day of how God poured out his presence in a mighty way and manifested himself very strongly among his people. What was going on, what the worship consisted of. Verse 13, again, it says it, this came to pass when? It says when the trumpeters and singers and all the worshipers were as one to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord when they lifted up their voice with the trumpet cymbals and instruments of music to praise the Lord. Take note of a few things if you would. Being united in worship really, really pleased God. It really, really pleased God and God moved in this powerful way and poured out his presence among his people when he saw the people of God, the musicians, the singers, and all the people unified. It says when they were as one to make one sound together in a unified way, giving praise and thanksgiving and worship unto the Lord. That pleased God. The Bible tells us in, in the Psalms, Psalm 133, how good and pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity. He says, there the Lord commands his blessing. Something about God, he loves to see his children together in a unified way, all becoming engaged in unified worship. Something about that. The worship of God, also what he desires, notice, is to be an expression of clearly sincere praise and adoration of the Lord and genuine thankfulness. Again, it's not just singing songs. It's not just going through the motions and, and kind of half-heartedly just you know, uttering words or singing phrases and not even really thinking about the phrases that we're singing, just rote routine. No, take notice, this worship that God blesses and honors, spiritual worship, was worship, it says, where the people became unified and it says they were praising the Lord. That is, they were giving genuine, heartfelt praise they wanted to honor god they wanted to to show god how much they loved him and express adoration towards him for his greatness and all of who he was and they were thanking the lord that is they were expressing genuine gratitude as they were saying lord thank you for who you are thank you for what you've done in my life thank you for the ways that you work and it says the people were doing this, not just singing, but making, if you would, as the New Testament says, melody in their hearts unto the Lord. Their heart was inclined to show gratitude and express adoration towards God. God blessed that kind of worship. And his presence was poured out in a powerful way. Again, just reminding us, not necessarily that there's anything wrong with great quality of music or singing, where if one of us can sing in a beautiful way as compared to the person two rows down who could crack a wine glass. What mattered to God was what was happening in the heart, right? That's what mattered to God. 
What mattered to God was the condition of the heart, that it was authentic praise. And the goal, I think, therefore, is a reminder for us, all of us collectively as the congregation, as worshipers, is to remember that these are the things that matter to God. That God wants us to engage together like one heart and one voice lifting up our praise to God in unison together, all doing the same thing. That's a good reminder because sometimes when we're tempted to kind of go off on our little spiritual solos, we should always remember that we want to be careful that God necessarily isn't pleased with or impressed by spiritual solos as much as he is a unified choir of worshipers lifting one voice, one heart to God in unison, agreeing together in faith in what they believe about God. There's something about that that blesses God. To remember that our heartfelt worship is what matters to God, not just, again, uttering phrases or words and not thinking about what we're saying or really meaning it from our hearts, but just kind of mouthing out the songs or the words. And to remember that God's not concerned about what we sound like, but God's concerned about what's going on inside of our hearts. And for those who have a gifting and a privilege and an anointing like these individuals here, Asaph and Judith and Heman, who were leading the worship that day with the instruments and guiding the singing, to realize the goal of musical worship leading is really these kind of things. It's to lead in such a way musically whereby you help collectively the congregation assembled to all come to a place where they in a unified way can all engage in the song. That's very important. I've been a Christian for plenty of years, as many of you have, and I've been to lots of different churches and gatherings of God's people, and and I have found individuals who they're very gifted musically, they can sing great, uh, but I wouldn't necessarily sometimes prefer having them as a worship leader. Because they may be able to lead a song or sing a song, but a worship leader is someone who, despite their own tremendous gifting or capacities or what notes they can hit or riff they can play or how they can do stuff, they understand my goal is to facilitate helping everyone engage in being able to sing. To sing the song in such a way, to play the song in such a way, to lead the song in such a manner where even the common Joe can follow along and sing and participate and in such a way where they feel inclined to want to sing. Again, that is being led, the music and the songs in such a way where people, they actually want to engage. They feel prompted by the Spirit as the anointing leads the person who's leading the worship to kind of facilitate that atmosphere of praise. So again, just a great reminder that that's the goal of our musical worship leaders, to help the congregation assemble as one to where it becomes like one voice. I love sometimes on a Sunday morning, a Wednesday evening, when those who the Lord's blessed us with here, Tommy and Chris and others who lead us in music, to at times be able to just, I just stop and I just shut off my ears from it. I love to hear the sound of kind of just that unified voice in the room, just lifting praise to the Lord. It's a beautiful thing to be able to just as one be adoring God and you can sense people are pouring out their hearts. And here, what a beautiful thing as that was done. God's presence was manifested. It says the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. And again, as we've said before, folks, remember, that's ultimately, even as that happened in that day, literally exactly what God's heart is today. As we've talked about that, the temple now from a New Testament perspective represents one Jesus, two 
Each of our lives individually is temples of the Holy Spirit, but three, the church collectively, that we are now, the Bible says, like living stones, First Peter tells us, we're being joined together like living stones, First Peter says, for the purpose of offering up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. That is, this is what we're intended to do together, to come together like living stones. God joins our lives, puts us where we fit, in a congregation so that we can live together, dwell together, and ultimately worship together in a way whereby God's presence is manifest among us and we're able to engage in giving to God's spiritual worship even as they were doing here in this very situation. So just a beautiful, beautiful scene. Must have been wonderful to be a part of. You know, I look at that and I think, wow, how much more do I long for that? And look, that, folks, is when the temple finally served its purpose. Up until that moment right there, what is it, verse 13 and 14, until that moment, the temple was just a pretty building. That's all it was. It was a very expensive, well-organized, beautiful building. But when the presence of God was powerfully manifest among the people of God and worship was ascending, then the temple was fulfilling the purpose for which God intended the temple to exist. Same applies for us. And how much more is that available to us because now the very presence of God dwells within each one of us to the glory of the New Testament mystery of Christ. Paul told the Colossians that there's this wonderful mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory. Here it says, the glory of God filled the house of God. Well, guess what? Now the Bible says the glory of God dwells in every Christian. Christ in you, the hope of glory. He's within every one of us that we might experience his presence in similar ways. Well, no chapter break. Verse 6, verse 1 says, Then Solomon spoke in light of this experience, saying the Lord said he would dwell in a dark cloud. I have surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell in forever. Now, when he says there, the Lord said he would dwell in a dark cloud, no doubt he's thinking in Leviticus chapter 16, because there in Leviticus 16, the Lord told Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, lest he die, for I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Again, so here, Solomon thinking upon those verses, that promise of God that he would appear in the cloud above the mercy seat and how the scripture brought to an understanding to him of exactly what was happening. Wow, what God said is coming to pass here. God is fulfilling his word by manifesting his presence among us in our midst. And verse three says, and the king turned around and then he blessed the whole assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel was standing. And he said, blessed be the Lord God of Israel who has fulfilled with his hands what he spoke with his mouth to my father David, saying, Since the day I brought up my people out of the land of Egypt, I have chosen no city from any tribe of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there, nor did I choose any man to be a ruler over my people. Verse 6, Yet, God said, I have chosen Jerusalem, that my name may be there, and I have chosen David to be over my people Israel. So Solomon here reflecting on how God had spoken as he's beginning to bless the people now at this dedication ceremony of the temple, how God had spoken and said, look, what I have done is unique. 
Never before as you traveled all around the wilderness did I select a permanent place for worship, an appointed location. The tabernacle moved all over, but he says, but now in this time and season, I have appointed Jerusalem to be the place where my temple would be built and where worship would be uh, kind of governed by that that would be the God-ordained way to come and to worship God from the temple there in Jerusalem. He said, never before had I chosen any person in the way that I ordained and I chose David to be a shepherd and a leader over my people. And what Solomon is reflecting upon there in verse 4 is, again, just the faithfulness of the Lord in doing what he spoke and bringing it to pass. That's why he says in verse 4, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who has fulfilled now with his hands what he spoke with his mouth to my father David. I love how Solomon, and he'll do it all throughout this chapter, keeps reflecting upon the faithfulness of God. Interesting, on the Feast of Tabernacles, as all these things are happening, which celebrates God's faithfulness, he keeps reflecting upon this. I mean, I have that underlined in verse 4 there. God has fulfilled with his hands what he spoke with his mouth. Is that not true? How many times in our life have we seen, if we were honest, where the Lord has fulfilled with the work of his powerful hand the very thing that he promised us at one point prior with his mouth? Whether it's a promise that God's just given to us in his word, a legitimate biblical promise, and when it comes to pass and we need to trust in that promise, <clears throat> and we need God to come through, and God fulfills with his mighty hand exactly what he's promised with his mouth and his word. And we say, wow, you actually brought that to pass. You did it. You gave me power to overcome sin. Lord, you said sin shall not have dominion over me. And, and Lord, wow, you brought it to pass. You set me free from that sin. And, and whether it be any promise God's spoken in his word or even the personal promises that God gives to us at times where the Lord speaks some promise into our life and we wonder how will that ever come to pass and the reason it comes to pass is because God has no limitations. And God has the power to do with his outstretched arm and his mighty hand things that are absolutely humanly impossible. And so God can speak something with his mouth and when he does, you can trust. It may not be in the timing that you prefer or would expect, but God has no limitation to fulfill with the power of his hand what he promises with his mouth. And only God can be like that, folks. I can make promises and I try my best, I hope like you do as a Christian with integrity, trying to represent God in honesty to fulfill the promises I make with my mouth, right? But as human beings, we're limited. Sometimes we can't do what we'd like to do or, or we're not able to do or something. But that's not the case with God. It does not matter what happens circumstantially or what exists in the situation. God has the power to fulfill with his hand whatever he promises with his mouth. And, and God's not a man that he should lie. He doesn't change his mind. And so when God promises something, how wonderful that he can fulfill with his hand in your life exactly what he speaks through his words and through his mouth to communicate to us. He says, verse 7 going on, Now it was in the heart, he says, of my father David to build a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, Whereas it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, he says, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the temple, but your son who will come from your body, he shall build the temple for my name. 
So the Lord has again, look what Solomon again says, the Lord has fulfilled which he spoke and I have filled the position of my father David and I sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised and I have built the temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel as God said Solomon would in place of David and there I have put the ark in which the covenant of the Lord which he made with the children of Israel. I love the way as Solomon reflects upon that experience with David and we've talked about it before but the language here in Second Chronicles gives us another little insight to the Holy Spirit's understanding of what happened between God and David and, and, and how it mattered so much to God what David had in his heart. Again, as Solomon's reflecting upon it uh, here, talking about it, it's recorded in such a way, verse 7, where it says, it was in the heart of David to build a temple. It was in David's heart to do that for God. But the Lord said to David, and we talked about the reasons why, you did well that it was in your heart, nevertheless, you're not going to build the temple. Solomon would be the God-ordained one to carry that out, though David wanted to do it. But I love the fact that God took note of what was in David's heart. And even though David did not carry out the desire or the activity of actually doing that specific work, God said, I'm so blessed that you had that in your heart. In fact, David... I'm going to honor the very desire that you had even though you didn't do that. David, he said, I'm so pleased that you did well, that it was in your heart to do that. The fact that you would want to build a temple for me, David, the fact that you would want to, to accomplish such a thing, that that desire and idea would be in your heart and mind. He says, David, you did so well to have that in your heart. And to me, that's such an encouraging thing because... Understand, there are going to be times, just like David here, in your life, where you may have a desire to do something. You may have a desire to do something for God. You may have an idea to want to do something to serve the Lord or to bless the Lord. And for some reason, circumstantially or just by God's sovereign choice or you know design or how things unfold, what you have a desire to do may not be the thing that God actually allows for some reason for you to carry out personally. But God still rewards the desire. God goes, you're still going to get reward and I'm still pleased and blessed just because you had that idea. The idea alone is going to earn you reward. You know, we, we may have a desire to want to, you know, become a missionary. And maybe though we have a desire, an idea to become a missionary that, that just for whatever reason doesn't end up being our calling or things come up circumstantially, you know, we get married and kids and all these things happen and all of a sudden we, we're not going on the mission field. And God says, but the fact that you had that kind of desire in your heart, that you, that you were willing to do that, that you wanted to see that come to pass, you know, oftentimes those can be the occasions too where then like David, we say, okay, Lord, well, if I'm not going to be the one to be able to carry out that desire, then what can I do to facilitate that desire still coming to pass through some other means or some other person? And like David with Solomon, he did all that preparation work and he got everything as ready as possible to help Solomon carry out what was still his desire. But what a wonderful thing. You know, I want to encourage you tonight. Maybe there are certain desires that you've had, hopes, dreams, ideas, and you're just, you know, kind of maybe even discouraged. Well, I just, man, I really wanted to see that come to pass, or I wanted to do that, and I wasn't able to carry it out or whatever. Look, God is so wonderful, he even sees what's in your heart. 
And, and the very fact that you have those kind of desires blesses God. Sometimes God gives us desires and those are things that we get to do and carry out. Other times we have desires and ideas just out of our love for God and, and desire to want to minister and do good things. And we may not for some reason get to carry them out, but God honors the desire. He blesses the desire. How wonderful that God sees our hearts and rewards our hearts in such a way. Why don't we close there for this evening? It's probably an apropos spot to, to kind of break off. Let's stand, let's pray and